Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series, Life Lessons from King David, today with a message entitled, David and Bathsheba. So turning your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Arthur Pink says that in the Psalms, there are two characters that reappear over and over again. You know, the first is the man who is consciously righteous, and these Psalms constitute a cry to God from the man who is suffering at the hands of the wicked. But the second man is the man who is convicted of his own sin, a heart that's deeply grieved over the offenses that he has done before God. Now then, Pink goes further in his analysis. He says that the two different men in the Psalms correspond well with the two different stages in the life of David. He says these two stages are the David that we find in 1 Samuel and then the one we find in 2 Samuel. You know, in 1 Samuel, we find David brought from obscurity to the place of honor. And then in 2 Samuel, in the second stage of David's life, we see him descending from the place of honor into sin, into degradation, into turmoil. And yet, says Pink, we still see the man who is leaning on the riches of God's grace. I don't think the division of David's ascendancy to honor and his descent into sin is really that clear. We've already noticed that in 1 Samuel, David might have murdered even the innocent members of Nabal's own household if God had not sent Abigail to arrest him and stop this madness of anger and revenge. And as we've already seen, David shows amazing righteousness in his dealings with Abner and in his dealings with the remainder of Saul's household. You know, once he becomes the victor, he doesn't actually dance on the graves of the vanquished. He shows himself to be a loving king. And so I guess what I'm saying is that the dividing line of the two Davids is not as clear as we might think. But if you also think about it, the enduring image that we have of David from 1 Samuel is that of a boy slash young man who stands on the battlefield facing Goliath with a sling and five smooth stones, trusting in the power and the might of the God of Israel and defeating the giant. And the enduring image that remains from 2 Samuel is David, an older and far more powerful man, standing on another field of battle, and this is the battle with lust. He views Bathsheba from afar and he abandons the great God of Israel for a season and falls on the battlefield of sin. Why then do we have these two images of David? And might I say, dear listener, that these two images also exist in you. You know, how precious are those moments when we trust only in the Lord? And how awful is that time when, perhaps older, we begin to bask in the power of privilege? So let's begin to read. David, as you know, has already brought crushing defeat on some of his most powerful enemies, and he's established Israel as a legitimate kingdom. His place in history is already secure, but more so, God himself has promised that one of his descendants will be the Messiah, the Savior of the world, who will rule the human race from the throne in Jerusalem, the throne of David. The young shepherd has come a very long way, and yet the man who was once a shepherd comes to the edge in which, while very much like the church in Ephesus from Revelation chapter 2, clearly David has lost his first love. 2 Samuel 11 verse 1 says, In the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. The idea that springtime was war season, well, that's always fascinated me. 
you know, the winter is over and winter is a bad time to fight. And now it's spring and the restless heart that seeks the utter destruction of the enemy is now upon the heart of every kingdom. And David sends his general Joab off to battle. David stays home and much has been made about that. And I suppose some of it is true, but some undoubtedly might not be. You know, at a later time, David's troops would remind the king that even if half of them were to die, it would not have near the consequence than if their king were to die on the battlefield. Indeed, in that day, it was a well-known tactic that if a king appears on the battlefield, one is to attempt to kill him regardless of the cost in troops. And David was just that valuable. You know, 2 Samuel really doesn't tell us why David stayed home. You know, it may have been that David and Joab together came to the conclusion that it was best for him to do that. Or it may have been that David simply wanted to bask in the privilege of what he had achieved. I mean, in truth, we don't know why he stayed home, so maybe it's best not to speculate. But we do know this. Privilege, while it may be right and deserved, still has considerable risk. And for David, that risk was that he now had an abundance of discretionary time. And with that, he had the power and the wealth to do whatever he wanted. Never before had he been in such a position and never before had he faced the fires of hell that burned so clearly in his own soul. So verses two and three, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, if we take the time to trace David's descent from temptation to sin and why it was that he so easily gave in to sin, well, let's follow the digression. As we've seen, the first step is a lot of time, and with a lot of time means resources and without purpose. That's the deadly cocktail. People sin less when they're consumed with purpose and with a spirit of sacrifice and the burden to serve. When they descend into leisure, they often sin. But give people all they want and a deep sense of entitlement floods their souls as they concentrate on what they want rather than on the mission to which God has called them. Step number one. Step number two is to have lust presented before our eyes. You know, in this case, it is, of course, a beautiful woman bathing outside. But I notice also that our text says that it was late in the afternoon and David's walking around. That is, perhaps he's bored or perhaps he's restless. But whatever the reason, he's lacking purpose. He's just walking around. From the height of his palace, he looks to the roof below and sees a woman bathing. And some say she's out there because in the late afternoon, things are so oppressively hot, and others say that she was in a ritual cleansing of her monthly period. Well, the author of 2 Samuel doesn't actually spell that out, but here, David is faced with temptation. The man of many wives and concubines finds that he cannot control his own heart. He wants more. He's on the hunt. His heart is receptive to lust, and once he sees what his heart craves, he's overcome with longing, step two. Step three is when he inquires of the woman, who is she? This now brings us one step closer. David might have argued, well, I haven't done anything. I'm just finding out who she is. But of course, that's not true. Let me here take a risk and tell of a personal encounter. I was then the senior pastor of a church of many thousands. And one day during the service, as I was moving among the worshipers and shaking hands, a rather striking young woman, dark hair, very slender, beautiful, and very intelligent looking took my outstretched arm, and she told me she had driven from Seattle just to meet me. 
She had seen me on a video, she said. And she said it in a way that made me think, wow, a woman of that quality is interested in me. And by the grace of God, I did what the Spirit of God instructed me to do. I I let go of her hand as if I'd been bitten by a snake and I turned my back on her and I just walked away and I never saw her again. I never asked who was that. Was I overwhelmed that she seemed so interested? Well, yeah, I was. But by the grace of the Holy Spirit, I shot a hole through that. Now, someone might object, well, aren't you punishing a woman for her friendliness? Well, perhaps, but I never harmed her. Was I cold and aloof to her even while I felt a rush of desire? Yeah, but I did what Joseph instructed me to do, for when Potiphar's wife reached out for him, he simply ran away. And I reasoned, I'd rather be charged with being cold and aloof rather than being charged with being hot and interested. But David doesn't take that exit ramp. Instead, now that he knows who she is, he, the king of Israel, will take the initiative and arranges a contact with a married woman. David now moves from temptation to sin. Verse 4 and 5 simply says, So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness, and then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. And here now we come to the matter of the consequences of sin. You know, isn't it interesting how we like to fool ourselves? You know, just one act of sin, and then that's going to be it. No one will know, and it won't mean a thing. Listen, sin is not like that. It never has been. We never sin without consequences, never. Perhaps it's the guilt we now deal with. Perhaps it's with the lies that we have to cover up. You know, perhaps it's a future relationship that's now being affected. Or in this case, perhaps it's an unwanted pregnancy. But whatever it is, there will be a fruit of sin that will grow in our own lives. You won't be able to get away with no consequences for any sin. Remember that before we move on. By now, many New Year's resolutions have been broken, if not abandoned. Most of our best intentions don't survive the month of January. The cynic may suggest there is no use in making any resolutions, but that's not the Christian path. The Christian life is filled with intentions that are set despite our spotty track record. The solution is not to abandon our good intentions, but to persist by God's grace. On that note, if deepening your prayer life has been on your heart this year, then you'll want to request our latest booklet, 30 Days of Prayer, A Season of Conversation with God. Within its pages are 30 prayers selected by Dr. John that span the 16th to 19th centuries. They reflect the language of that day, but its content is rich and effectively reflects the longing of our hearts in prayer. To request your free copy, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. It was the old Puritans who said that the greatest problem with adultery is not adultery itself. Now, of course, adultery is a problem. It's a sin against our own body. It's a sin against the body of another. It's a sin against our spouse. It's a sin against our children as well as our extended family and our church. 
but ultimately it's a sin against a holy God who has designated how the body is to function in relationship to him. And David's not unaware of the seventh command, you shall not commit adultery. And knowing the command of God, he disregards it and tramples it underfoot in his lust and acts out of a heart that prizes lawlessness. But the old Puritans would have hastened to add, this was not David's greatest sin, and neither is it the greatest sin of all adulterers. They would have said, Satan is never called the God of adultery in the Bible. Rather, he's called the father of lies. Always following every act of adultery is the second, even more profound sin of lying. And that's because lying requires even more sins so that the lie would succeed. It was the serpent who said to Eve, if you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will not die. He was lying. And David was about to go from a man of integrity and righteousness to a man of deceit and cover up and eventually a man who would even murder one of his own troops to cover his own sin. Oh, how suddenly David looks different than he used to look. Ask yourself the question, what happens to you should you become a stranger to the truth? Eventually, no one knows who you truly are, yet it gets worse. Soon you don't know who you truly are, but it even gets worse than that. The penetrating eyes of God do know who you are, and he will expose you in his sight. 2 Samuel 11 verse 6 says, So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent Uriah to David. And Joab, as you will remember, is in a war with Ammon. The battle is raging, and David asks for Uriah the Hittite, the husband of Bathsheba. You know, many have noted that this man is not an Israelite by birth, but that he probably, very much like David's great-grandmother Ruth, would have converted to the God of Israel and have taken refuge under the wings of Israel's God. Yeah, that's the man. David says, bring him to me. You know, at this, neither Joab nor Uriah are any the wiser. But we're about to see that David is ready to go to the next stage in his sin. He will use deceit to cover up the consequences of sin. And I suppose if David had been born in our day, he would simply have ordered an abortion. And in either case, whether it would have happened to the husband of Bathsheba, or in the case of abortion to an unborn child, someone was going to die before this was done. But of course, initially, David never would have dreamt it would come to that. That's the interesting thing about what happens once we become liars. We can't imagine where lies will lead us. Indeed, once we embark upon the pathway of the lie, that pathway always ends in death. Well, let's continue to read in verses 7 to 11. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. And when they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my Lord Joab and the servants of the Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Ah, David is now looking at a man who is truly zealous for his God. Well, it's just the way David had been. So do you think it would have been easy to subvert the young David? No, no, it was not. And David's looking in a mirror at his former self. 
David has asked, after seeming to be interested in how things are going on the battlefield, for the man to go down to his house, and he wants him to enjoy sexual relations with his wife so that he's going to believe that this is his baby. But as much as Uriah's heart might long for that thing, he's committed not to breaking solidarity with those who are right now fighting and dying on the field. This is a day in which men are dying. This is a day to protect the nation of God, and Uriah wants to be numbered as a man who is willing to lay down his life for his God. And so to the invitation to go home and sleep with his wife, Uriah looks at the king and says, I will not do this thing. You know, we have to stop here and imagine that God has just given David an opportunity to come to terms with himself. While men are fighting and dying, David is lying with one of his soldiers' wives. David's been breaking ranks with his most loyal soldiers, and here is a man of integrity whose response to David is an opportunity for David to turn now and see what righteousness looks like, and to see the man he himself once was. But we notice that David's already made a commitment. He's now committed to the lie. The way forward for David is to follow that pathway of the lie and see where it leads. So we go forward to verses 12 and 13. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. And we have to ask, who is David becoming now? He's now trying to seduce this man to lose all morality and to enter into the same dark world that David has now himself come to occupy. Instead of being the king of righteousness, David is becoming the king of the dark lord. Amazingly, Uriah is not going to budge. In the end, we know where this story ends. David now commits more firmly than ever to let the world of lies become his master. He writes out a letter and he condemns Uriah to the front lines of the battle. And he orders that at just the right time, Joab is to order the troops to fall back and expose Uriah and cause Uriah to die at the hands of the enemies of Israel and at the enemies of God. One wonders what Joab thought. Did David find Uriah the Hittite to be a traitor? Maybe. Perhaps David had uncovered a real problem with this man so that he must be killed but secretly. Well, we don't know what Joab thought, but he knew that the king had orders to ensure that this man never makes it home. And you've got to stop here and wonder what David would have thought that he would gain by this. You know, he has Uriah killed, and he quickly marries his widow, and he has the baby, but the math is not going to work. The baby is born much less than nine months later. Is this going to pass the smell test with anyone who's even slightly paying attention? No, no, it's not going to do that. Would David think that Joab hadn't noticed? Or how about his own wives and children? Or how about his own military officers? How about anyone who is related to Uriah? It's sheer madness to think that this plan is going to succeed, and it won't. James 1.15 says, Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Yeah. When sin is grown up, it brings the final stage. It's death. It's always death. It was death when Adam and Eve committed the first sin. It was death when Cain wrestled with his insane jealousy of his brother. And in the case of David, it's death again. Sin always gives birth to death every time. Either we murder sin or sin murders others and eventually us. David's not paying attention. Now then, Joab sends a message from the battlefield to the king. Uriah is dead, and David sends a message, don't let it worry you. 
One sword devours one and also the other. And the chapter ends with 2 Samuel 11, 26-27. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. See, I have to wonder if Bathsheba knew whether or not David had orchestrated this matter of the death of her husband. Was she aware of the powerful consequences of her own sin? Why did she send a note to the king saying, I'm pregnant? She could have confessed the matter to her husband. The answer, she too was interested in weaving her own set of lies. She's complicit in this murder as well. And David, well, the man after God's own heart, doesn't that now sound like a hollow boast after all? Rather, is it not David the hypocrite and the man that has become as sinful as the king whom he replaced? And in the end, sin that is not dealt with always looks like that. And it's time to speak personally to every one of you. Are you in need of repentance? Have you sinned in such a way that you have now begun to spin your own lies so that no one might ever consider or find out what you've done? If that's you, hear the voice of God speaking through me. The time for repentance is now. Do not make a deal with the father of lies. Come rather into the light, confess your sin openly, and find grace so that murder does not come to you as well. John, I need to ask you a question. I think it's pretty easy sometimes to overlook the sins in our lives because we don't think they're very consequential. What's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, I I think, you know, there are sins, I would say, Ben, that are less consequential than others. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't repent of them. But there are some sins that we do that do have great consequence. Uh, And maybe I'd make the distinction in this way. Uh, Those sins that we think are inconsequential are still consequential in our relationship with God and in our uh, walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, sin always interrupts our relationship with God. But there are some sins as well that spills over all banks, and it seems to affect everyone. I mean, in David's case, I don't think there's a single person in the entire kingdom that was not affected by what he did. What do we do in times like this? And the wonderful news from this story is that Christ offers us forgiveness, and we ought to seize on that. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Life Lessons from King David, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Do you ever find yourself wanting to spend time with the Lord in His Word, but don't seem to find the time? Well, here at Back to the Bible Canada, we understand some days are hectic and challenging. And that's why we would encourage you to check out our Back to the Bible Canada Bible Minute podcast. Each episode contains a one-minute audio Bible teaching message from Dr. John Newfeld, with new episodes Monday through Friday. These are perfect for those moments when you're seeking spiritual encouragement, but time is short. So you can download the Bible Minute podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts or visit backtothebible.ca slash apps. For more information, give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. 
And thank you to all those who make Bible teaching resources like the Bible Minute available through your gracious gifts.